This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Sir Eric Thomas, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Bristol, President of Universities UK and Chair of the Worldwide University Network, and now Studiosity Advisory Board Member. Welcome. Welcome Dame Denise Holt, who I regard not only as a colleague, but a friend. Uh, and uh, Denise has come to this podcast uh, as, uh, uh, as the chair of the governing body of the University of Sussex. And I, Denise, I want to talk about governance in general and, and the challenges of governance of a university and managing a governing body. And I think I want to start by saying that we are not personalising any of this to your relationship with the University of Sussex. This is a very general uh, conversation also for an international audience. But perhaps the, the best thing to start off with is if you'd be kind enough to uh, introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you, Eric. Well, um, it's where to begin, really. At my age, I've had a lot of background. <laughs> uh, you and I first met, perhaps that's where to start this saga, when you were Vice-Chancellor of Bristol University, which was my alma mater. And uh, I then subsequently joined the council, the governing body of the University of Bristol, um, which was my first exposure really to governance of uh, higher education institutions, although I did spend some time at the Institute of Advanced Studies in, at the University of London with their uh, Hispanic departments. So I've seen it in a very small environment uh, and I've seen governance of a university from a very big, very eminent university such as Bristol. And I find myself now as chair of Sussex at one of the, I suppose what people in this country would regard as a slightly edgy university, a university that um, it was really part of the beginning of a, the, the, I don't know whether you call it glass window or something, uh, wave of universities, but certainly um, a very modern and free thinking concept when it started 60 years ago, actually, 1961. Right. So it's no longer young. Um, and it's probably like all of us in our middle years, having to come to terms with a world that has changed a bit on its axis. And I think... In a way, that's um, one of the themes of governance. Now, for me, the interesting thing is that I've done quite a lot of work on boards and governance in different contexts. So my first career was in the Foreign Office. Uh, and subsequently, when I left the Foreign Office, I joined a number of commercial boards and indeed the board of a regulator uh, of core at the time. So I've seen governance at work in quite a lot of different environments where either shareholders are the ultimate authority or government ministers. And it's a question always, I think, of what, what governance means it tends to be held in common. So whether it's a university, a regulator or the foreign office, there are certain basic tenets of good governance that apply everywhere and right. then it's also a question of um, in its own context 
what do the staff, what do the stakeholders expect of that institution? So I've seen governance at work in quite a lot of different ways. Uh, and I'm more struck at the end by what they all have in common than what they differ on. Although you maybe need different words to explain it to people. Well, I mean, we will go into that in a little more detail. I, 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 this is why I wanted to have this conversation is that I, I, I think there's a very strong a statement that actually the governing body is the single most important committee in the university. Yet it's probably the one that the many, many of the staff of the university know the least about. I'll never forget how this is a mayor culpa, Denise. Uh, when I, I was made head of the School of Medicine at Southampton in 1995, and in those days people were put on council, and I received a letter to say that I was now a member of council. And having been at the university for the five years at that stage, that was the first time I'd seen the word council. <laughs> and, and I really didn't, I, I really genuinely didn't, because for me as your average jobbing professor, I, I, you know, it didn't, yet, yes, it's up, and, and has become increasingly so as an important committee. Would you agree with that? I would. Um... And I've, I've sometimes worried about how to counter the fact that we are little known and seen as being something in the shadows almost, um, when in fact the direction of travel has been to give more responsibility and more accountability to councils, which means that inevitably they need to assert themselves more. Um, as always, people, there is not a great appetite in any organisation for biographic notes about who is a member of your council or, you know, this is what we discussed this month. I do actually at uh, Sussex write uh, after each termly meeting, I do write a letter to all staff saying these are the key things we talked about. I think they have an almost minimal readership. And I can well understand that. I'm sure when I was in my executive career, I probably wouldn't have read it either. But no, it is very hard to know how to communicate in a way that's interesting and engaging. I mean, not only in the UK, of course, but uh, globally, and it's seen in the United States of America and Australia, the centrality of council in the decision-making of the university, and in fact, in the way the university it, it, it has become increasingly important, certainly in my 20 years of senior level experience, mm. uh, the, the, the relationship of the governing body to the rest, to the university is so different now than it was in the year 2000. Yes, and it's interesting. I, I, I wonder why that is. I, I have a couple of theories. One is that the size of universities now means that the, um, the almost self-governing approach mm. of universities of yesteryear isn't quite so appropriate. For a start, the staff body is going to be enormous in many cases um, and bigger than is feasible to have as a decision-making body. You know, yes. certainly a consultative body and a body that will express its opinion. But as to whether you can get a decision on time for spending or whatever it might be, I think it's arguable it's not possible anymore, except in the smallest institutions. Yeah, uh, and I would agree. I mean, I, 
I remember when I arrived in 2000, old lag vice-chancellors, you know, uh, long in the tooth at that stage, would talk about managing council. Mm. In other words, they, you know, uh, they were keeping back some information and, and letting, and you just don't hear that sort of conversation. And I mean, it stopped years ago. Mm. And, uh, it, uh, it, it, I, and I think the other thing, Denise, is, of course, that we rely less and less on government funding, as you yeah. know, and therefore the decisions about how investment is made and risk taking that goes with that are absolutely essential. I mean, I think the sense of what risk you take is probably one of the most important decisions of the governing body. What would you think? Yeah, we always say risk is the key to the success of an institution because you have to take some risk but you don't want to take more than you can um, you can properly manage I think um, and and those discussions have been quite uh, represented quite a sea change I think for universities so it means that on councils you need to have people who are comfortable talking about millions of pounds investments mm. and uh, what actually the risk is you know what because risk is quite nebulous as an issue until you start probing into it and what is the opportunity and so you do need some people who've got really uh, hard-edged business experience on your boards because otherwise you're going to be a little bit at sea with some of the decisions that have to be taken but um I think one of the other things that's been very striking to me is how, I don't want to say easy, because finding good people is never easy, but we have fantastic high quality boards mm. On, mm. at British universities, because I think people are excited by the opportunity to work with higher education and to you know, see, make what is seen as one of our points of excellence in this country even better. So we do get tremendous applications for people who are going to give up their time for nothing and share their experience. But it can be difficult to keep them um, engaged and so on if they feel that their, their authority is resented or uh, sure. challenged at, at, at a fundamental level. So I, I do think it's quite important that we appreciate what we're getting from people who take on this responsibility? I remember discussing with my first chair, I was very fortunate, I had wonderful chairs of council, um, and um, with my first chair of council, you know, and what, what I was clear with him is, I wanted to in, for him to ensure the very highest quality people were put on the governing body. Yeah. Now, they were the people who were likely to give me a hard time, but I didn't mind that because <laughs> I, I, I wanted the quality uh, yeah. that, that, that goes with it. And, and that sense of recruiting people who are going to, <laughs> going to assist you in, 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 in guiding the university going forward. I mean, we had a wonderful um, um, member of the governing body who was, who was a, a local businessman. And he actually made us, as chair of the finance committee, take more risk than we would have. Yes, exactly. Yes. I don't know if you see if you've actually seen that. Um, I think I have seen uh, members of council reinforcing and encouraging the executive 
to uh, be bold because I think it's quite difficult. You know, when you're in anything which is kind of a public sector, public service environment, naturally the executives have a very high sense of responsibility about the money they're spending and what the alternative uses for that money is and, um, and feel very hesitant to take on unnecessary risk. And I think that's where I go back to the point about needing some hard-headed businessman who'll say, but mm. the return mm. is worth the risk in mm. this case, you know, take it. Uh, and, and I think that's the dialogue you need to have. And uh, it, the other thing is the diversity of, of the body, because you're, you're absolutely right about the, uh, uh, the, 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 the business people, but you need people from the third sector, yeah. you need people from the health service, if, you're, if, you, if you've got, you know, you, you need people from the city, from the city, from the, from the, the, the city yeah. council, you, you need to have quite a diverse group of people around the table. You do, and I think that takes us to another thing, which is, um, it struck me, you know, what is the optimal size of a, of yeah. a, a governing body? Um, as you rightly say, you need to have people who can, who can come at issues from different perspectives and uh, argue the toss among themselves. Add to that, you have a certain probably statutory or charter requirement to have a certain number of staff and a certain number of students and the vice chancellor and possibly the pro vice chancellor, uh, the uh, deputy vice chancellor and so on. And you quite quickly get to quite a big number. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then you have to say to yourself, is this, you know, are we also outgrowing our, our capacity to be a quick, efficient decision making body? I think uh, the councils that I've had the good fortune to be on have been just the right side of being yes. too big. Um, yes. And it probably would be a mistake to be too small, but I think there, there is room for being a little more um, efficient uh, in terms of, you know, so we, for example, at Sussex, we do have three or four representatives from the third sector we have a certain number of people who are from government, you know, treasury or other regulators or what, whatever it might be. So, so um, I think as long as you've covered things off with good representatives from each sector, you maybe don't need four or five. I mean, it's interesting. I think I was on a hospital trust board, an acute hospital trust board. Um, and the interesting thing about that is it was much, much smaller than the governing yeah. body of a university. Yeah. But life was changing much more rapidly in the yeah. hospital than yeah. it ever changes. I mean, universities think it's changing rapidly, <laughs> but it's nothing in comparison to a major yeah. teaching hospital. And therefore, you needed to meet more frequently, you needed to be able to make decisions more quickly, and you needed a, a caucus of people that could make it. So maybe there's room for a little bit of size in a university because it's a different environment. Yeah, yeah, I, there is room for a bit of size. Um, what do I think? I, I nonetheless think, I think that as time goes by, the challenges that you, even universities face, the decisions they will mm -hmm. have to make under pressure, you know, against the clock, 
will grow. And, yes. and I suspect, as we have seen the professionalization, you know, if you look back at um, people who joined university councils 30 years ago, I would say they would have seen it as a really nice way to meet people they found interesting and to take an interest in universities, but it wouldn't have been quite as professional as the sort of people who are joining university boards now. Absolutely. So I think that trend will continue. I'll never forget the weight of uh, when uh, on my shoulders when I uh, got on the got on the tube to go to Canary Wharf to borrow a quarter of a billion pounds, uh, <laughs> and he suddenly realised you do need professional backup in your governing body. They need to have thought through that decision really carefully. I mean, one of the challenges that I, I found in general was that. Of course, outstandingly good lay members often knew very little about a university. They sort of knew a university was a good thing in general, and good for the city and good, uh, good for the research, uh, and that they had quite a learning curve to go up. Uh, uh, you know, I think they thought it was quite a simple environment, only to find out that it's very much more complex. Did you see that among some of your lay members, the learning curve, so to speak? I saw it amongst myself when I first joined your your, camp, your governing body, actually, Eric, and I had to learn about how universities are run, actually, day to day, and who's doing the running and so on. And... Uh, I agree, universities are very different as organizations to a government department, a hospital, as you say, mm. or a bank. I mean, they just um, have a higher, I don't know, maybe I'll stick my neck out and say, I think there is a higher expectation among staff that their views will shape mm. whatever decisions are made. And I had come from, you know, if you're if you're in government, you take it for granted that ministers' views are going to shape the organisation, the name of it, what it does, who does it, etc. You don't expect to have a, a an influence on that. And the same is true, I would say, in almost every other work environment. So there is something quite different about a university from my um, observation. But at the same time. I think I go back to the question of complexity on the one hand and the need to explain, because I think, yes, members of council have a big learning curve, but sometimes they also have stuff to teach the university about, mm. you know, the way that these things should should and could be looked at. And the, the factors you mentioned, risk, for example, how to assess risk and so on. So I think it is a bit of a sort of mutual exchange. It's not all um, one way. Not one way. No, no, uh, 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 absolutely. And of course, sometimes it was quite interesting what council would engage with and, and, and what council wouldn't engage with. And so, for example, you know, if you decided that we needed 14 million pounds for research into quantum computing, uh, you know, not only did the vice chancellor not know what quantum computing was about <laughs> as a simple medic, but almost nobody in the, and they had to take it on as an article of faith, if you see what I mean, yes. you know, just assume that, that, that the senior team had seen that through. 
Whereas things like widening participation, uh, you know, they, they, estates, they can understand more, you know, it, so there's various bits where they could really add value and various other bits where they kind of had to trust the executive. Yeah, but that's the same really in any commercial organisation too, I would say. I mean, I think my, my overriding principle of being on a governing body is don't be on the governing body if you don't trust the senior execs. Right. You know, it, it, the risk is too high. It's not worth taking. So uh, if you're on the board of a bank, there are going to be moments when you're a bit out of your depth if you're not a banker. Right. But if you trust the people who are uh, in charge of that bank, and if you can sit down with them and say, I don't understand this, please explain it to me, then you're okay. If you feel they're pulling the wool over your eyes or getting the money out of you, in your example, the 14 million on some pretext uh, or something that, you know, that doesn't quite smell right, then you've got to say, I'm, I'm not up for that decision. Yes. I mean, I, someone once asked me how, if you're a non-executive director, and we use that in, in, in on the government, yeah. do you know that you're being told the truth by your executive team? Mm -hmm. Your FD was the classic example. And the answer is that over a period of time, he or she has told me that the following is what's happening, yeah. and it has happened. And it has happened. And then and the next time around, he or she says something else is going to happen, and it has happened. And so that over a period of time, the consistency of what you get as information mm. and advice actually creates trust. Mm. Is that a fair assessment? I, 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 one of the things I have found surprising, I must say, is that we hear a lot uh, in the university sector about lack of trust. And I don't know what it means because I have yet to meet any managers in the university system who are not doing the jobs they've got to the best of their ability in the best interests of the university, the students, the staff. Yes. So, so, so it's a puzzle to me why, that, why people um, might feel that there is a lack of trust. Uh, I think that you're right. Past record generally tells you whether or not the person is, has been telling you the truth. And in many cases, university staff don't move around quite so fast. You might find your finance director has been with you for 10, 15 yes. years, not yes. unusual. So yes. you would have that evidence. <laughs> so what, it, what I'm not sure is, is it that people don't trust the governing body or the finance director to reveal the truth unto them? Or is it that people don't trust the governing body to do what they staff or they students would like them to do, right? So right. it could be that they just want you to do something different, not that they don't trust what you're doing is true. No, I, 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 I have a feeling, I, I, I never felt that there was a lack of trust. I, I was very fortunate. Um, I, I mean, I think sometimes, of course, the staff would like to know what the vice chancellor is up to, if you don't mind, well. you know. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I, it was always—I always had a feeling that, on balance, that they that they yes. were coming behind where where we were wanting to go. 
I mean, another thing which fortunately neither you or I have had the experience of, but certainly in the United States of America, in Australia, where there's been massive dissonance between the governing body and the executive of the university. Right. And that can be absolutely, as is shown in Australia with some examples, uh, absolutely catastrophic for the university. Yes, I'm sure. It's yes. interesting that, isn't it? I've always taken the, I know there are people who see uh, a governing body as a kind of arbiter, you know, a kind of referee yes. between different positions. Whereas my view is very much, we are there to make a success of this university and to support and challenge, but mainly support the executive in doing so. So I don't quite understand the sort of impartial referee view of a government no, body. No. And maybe it was because that was more like what it possibly was. I, I mean, I'll never forget seeing the financial statements for the University of Bristol in something like 1973, which had income from government grant, 8.75 <laughs> million, expenditure, 8.75 million. I mean... <laughs> 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 you know yeah. that you know if you wanted a new building you got the new building for a grant from the university grants committee yes you didn't have to go out and find 75 yeah. million or 80 million pounds for it and therefore the, you know the governing body could be more in a sense more of a referee whereas now it's making absolutely crucial decisions that's a very good point. And I, I confess I never was on a university council at a time when the government was really in charge. Yes. Yeah. And I think 13 percent of Bristol's income when I left was coming as a, wow. as a grant yeah. from the government. I mean, you, my chairs of the governing body were putting a minimum of a day a week in uh, uh, Denise and, and sometimes two days a week. And if they're really interested in the university, going around, seeing everybody. I mean, do you think we're getting to a stage, I mean, to talk about people's desire to be on the governing body, where rather like hospital trust boards, we're going to have to start paying uh, people to, to join our governing bodies? I go round and round on this one. I, I was for a time on a, an NHS uh, board and I confess I left. Um, and now the money was not really material. I mean, the money is nice. It shows that you've done something helpful, but it wasn't sufficiently significant to tilt my decision one way or the other. And I slightly feel that universities are in that position that the amount we could afford to pay sure. to uh, members of council uh, would barely recognize the contributions they're making in time and in intellectual effort so it would be more token than um than valuable on the other hand uh, you get the paradox that unless you do have some system it's quite difficult for younger um economically active people sure. to give the time to the university. Actually, at Sussex, we've been very fortunate and we do have a good representation of uh, people in their working career, although I never know how they manage to fit it all in. But um, 
But I do think there is a dilemma there, and I'm not quite sure. I think as the stakes go up, given the, the scale of the investments, as you're talking about, you know, a degree of amateurism is acceptable, but not very much. You do need people making decisions who know what they're talking about. Uh, absolutely. I mean, part, part of it um, is um, how do you start people on that trajectory so they become in inverted commas, the senior non senior non executives. I mean, I think it's very important that people people in their late thirties get some kind of non executive role because it, it starts it starts them developing that that that's that CV. And if it's a place on a university council, or um, uh, my, my daughter's just become a trustee on World Book Day, for example. Oh, how interesting! Yeah, uh, at the age of thirty seven, and, and it helps for the development of their career uh, yeah. and uh, and then and they bring a different perspective to the table totally agree and we've just taken a um we just just completed a recruitment round for new governors and we had some really great candidates including some who as yet had no previous non-executive experience and, you know, we had others who did have and who were slightly stronger on the day. But what we decided to do is co-opt the younger ones to be external members of, of committees that they were right. particularly interested right. in as a way of gaining experience of because there's that difficult thing, isn't there? It's how do you influence without having power? You know, how do you mm. nudge the discussion on? How do you? work with the organization for change so right. anyway i'm hoping that we're going to do just exactly what you're talking about there through these uh, younger members i think it'd be exciting to see well uh we we have about 35 minutes and we've done 25 or 26 Good. minutes uh denise and i've just got a little subsidiary to ask you which of course is you had an unbelievably distinguished career as an ambassador uh, in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as well as the major senior director in the office when you weren't on ambassadorial duties. But you were our ambassador to Mexico, which you know I'm very connected with, and, and, and Spain. And I was just going to say, did you find that higher education, you know, were you, in inverted commas, in the best sense, selling British higher education as the, as the ambassador? Was, was it a good, a good in your in your basket that you gave to the country absolutely it was and it was one of the um, one of the things that ambassadors can do which is tremendously fulfilling is uh, put out the word about british higher education or whatever it is you're talking about on day x but uh, in mexico in particular and and you'll probably recognize this eric but the Foreign Office has a scholarship scheme, chevening scheme, yes. and um, Mexico has always been a tremendously successful user of that scholarship scheme. One of the largest numbers of students almost every year tends to come from Mexico. Also, um, there were constant demands on me from Mexican universities about how could they work more closely with British opposite numbers, because British higher education is so highly valued and esteemed in other countries. They really wanted to develop partnerships. And so I, um, at a certain point in my time in Mexico, I invited a significant number of vice chancellors to come out to Mexico 
and we would organize a tour for them to meet other mm. universities and get to know what was on offer in the sector. Uh, I think it was five vice chancellors came, sadly not yourself. I don't even know whether at the time you were a vice chancellor, I can't mm. remember. Possibly but, a young one. Just a very young, one. yeah. I was a very young ambassador, of course, at the time. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we had such an interesting time and it really paid dividends because I think there were sort of, you know, little bells rang for individual vice chancellors and relationships were made. And that is something that lies at the core of diplomacy is putting people in a room and encouraging them to find things in common. Uh, yeah. So yes, higher education was great. Every year there would be a great, in, in Spain as well, a great sort of event selling British universities to uh, the audience locally and always had huge queues and great interest. So yeah, it was great fun. I mean, I think what's wonderful to hear is that, of course, these are non-Anglophonic uh, countries. Their primary language is Spanish, of course. And, and so we, we kind of assume that the Anglophonic countries know about British higher education, if you see what I mean. And it, it's really reassuring to hear that there's also a reputation beyond just the, the Anglophonic diaspora. Definitely. Uh, I mean, in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America, of course, English is very dominant because of the relationship yeah. with the United States, but they're quite keen to not be just dependent on the United States. So the United Kingdom forms a good part of a triangle there in their relationships. And in Spain, actually, you know, I would say that over the history of my lifetime, our relationship with Spain has become closer and closer. Possibly tourism has something to do with it. But uh, certainly when we were still in the European Union, British students going to Spain were in very large numbers and vice versa. Right, right, right. Well, let's hope that continues uh, in the future. Denise, we're coming to the end of our chat on, on really, I mean, in governance, a very, very, very important topic. Um, you know, um, the, 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 diff the difficulty with not having reliance on the state is that you, in inverted commas, technically can go bust. Yes. And if you're not, if you're not properly governed and you aren't being, you know, guided properly and you're not taking these very important decisions responsibly, you know, you, things can go wrong quite quickly. Seriously wrong. I, I do agree. I think um, something I haven't mentioned that perhaps I should dot my cap in their direction is the regulator, the Office for Students, because another right. reason why governance and the role of council has become prominent is that there are conditions for registration and council has a duty to ensure that right. standards are met and that, right. the, that we are reporting accurately. So I think there has been a general effort to um, ensure that, that people who pay a, quite a lot of money for a serious higher education get value get for money and get a good degree at the end of it. And I totally support that. Yeah, and that, of course, is one of the prime responsibilities of the governing body to ensure Absolutely. that that's happening. Absolutely. Right. Well, I mean, I, judging by what you've said and the tone in your voice and your body language, I really don't have to ask you this question, but I am assuming you've enjoyed very much being chair of council at Sussex. 
I've, I've enjoyed everything I've ever had the opportunity to do, Eric. It's been, you know, life is full of uh, unexpected delights. And right. the University of Sussex has been just the latest of those unexpected delights. Well, you know, my predecessor, John Kingman, of course, was a professor at Sussex for 10 years. I didn't know. And it was in the days when they used to call it Balliol by the Sea. Did you ever hear that? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> what a nice description. But I think your, your latest successor, um, you know, the current newly appointed Vice Chancellor at Bristol, was also at Sussex for a while. Yes, yes, so is, that's fantastic. Yeah. So lots of links. Well, listen, Denise, thank you very much indeed. That was a, a very interesting chat, and I have absolutely no doubt that our listeners will find it fascinating. And uh, great to catch up again. Absolutely. Let's not make it so long next time. All right, Denise. <laughs> Lovely to Cheerio. see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Visit studiosity.com slash studentsfirst for the next Students First Symposium an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.